Hello, and welcome to episode 166 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Jarrett Benford. This week, host Robert Randolph talks to Mariel Petit about machine learning, the physics of dance, unexpected relationships, and the importance of collaboration. But before we jump into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that we are hiring. Check out cognitech.com careers.html or reach out to us at jobs at cognitech.com. And now, Mariel and Robert. Hello, welcome to the Cognicast again. I'm here with Marielle Petit. Please introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Sure. My name is Marielle. I'm a physicist. So I just started a postdoctoral fellowship at Berkeley Lab, which is a national laboratory over in Berkeley, California. And I finished my PhD in physics earlier this spring, working on the ATLAS experiment at CERN, which is a particle physics experiment based at CERN, which is the world's largest particle accelerator. So for my PhD, really, I'm, I've been interested in understanding the fundamental building blocks of matter and to what extent we can measure them and try to understand them. And for my postdoc position, I've been spending a lot of time focusing and shifting a bit into the machine learning space and thinking about how to use machine learning for fundamental physics. So that's part of me. And then another part of me is that I'm a performing artist and I have been for a number of years and that's largely been in the dance and theater and performing arts space as a dancer, director, actor, a choreographer, that kind of thing. That's awesome. Most people who are tuning in are probably familiar with your Strange Loop talk that you probably gave, mm. I think, uh, as of the time we're recording, about two or three months ago. Before we get to that point, I'd like to rewind and I'd like to know how you got into physics and engineering and math and then... Once we cover that, I'd like to know how you got into performing arts as well. Sure. How did I get into physics? I don't know. I've, I've always kind of loved um, math and science. In some sense, I really credit my mom with getting me into it. She was a math major in college, and she was incredibly brilliant. She also had a minor in um, art history. So I feel like I was growing up trying to be a bit more like her and just kind of always grew up in this space where math and art and science and curiosity was all kind of interwoven. So yeah, I think that started from a pretty early age. I think I always loved astronomy and astrophysics and space. Like, like many people, I think I wanted to be an astronaut and working at NASA. And so when I got to college, I thought I would study astrophysics. And I started asking around with some professors and they recommended that actually, if I was interested in astrophysics, maybe I should just study physics and get a really you know, solid, deep foundation that I could apply to astrophysics or to whatever else. And then it was around my sophomore year of college when I got the opportunity to have an internship at CERN the summer of 2012. And I couldn't have been luckier. I mean, it was the summer that we, that at CERN, there was this announcement of the discovery of the Higgs boson particle, which is this incredibly important particle in fundamental physics. And people had been searching for it for decades at the, at the Large Hadron Collider. And I started my internship July 1st, 2012. And three days later on July 4th, 2012, was this like seismic announcement in the field. So that was sort of my introduction to real research in science was this unbelievable day. And I just remember feeling like I was in the center of the universe when I was there. And I'd never experienced anything like it. And I just knew that I wanted to contribute to the study of this new particle. And so that got me hooked. Do you feel like your trajectory through physics was fairly straight? Or did you have any meanderings into to other subjects and until you found the path that you mm. felt like you were comfortable with? Yeah, I tried to make it meandering kind of on purpose. I mean, there's there's so many subfields of science. 
And I wanted to make sure that I didn't just pick a field and then not experience anything else. So like I said, when I got to college, I was really interested in astrophysics. And I started my freshman year by doing some research in astrophysics, thinking about kind of these over densities in the universe based on early behavior around the Big Bang. So I had a dose of astrophysics research, and then I had a dose of particle physics research pretty intensely in college. Then I actually went to England for a master's degree at the University of Cambridge for a year after I graduated college. And when I was there, I really thought that I would try to challenge my understanding of myself. I thought maybe I could be a very different kind of scientist and I just wanted to experience something different. So when I was there, I worked in a biophysics lab and that was, you know, real like goggles and lab coat and pipettes. And that's sort of a wet lab experience, but also a clean room experience. I was evaporating gold onto certain uh, materials. So that was a totally different experience, kind of like a classic scientific experience, maybe for many people. And it was fascinating, but it was, it was about a year long. And when I started my PhD the following year, I really felt like it was a cool experience, but I was just so drawn into these fundamental questions that were being asked in particle physics. And it was an exciting time to work in, in particle physics because the Large Hadron Collider was actively taking data at the time. So I just felt like I would regret going through my PhD and not analyzing this like fresh crop of new data that was coming from this incredible machine. So a bit meandering, but I sort of ended back up where I sort of always knew my heart was was lying. Mm -hmm. And during that time, while you were going through, I assume you have a performing arts background that developed as well? Is that yeah, correct? that's right. And how, how did that form? Yeah, that started in high school. I sort of stumbled into it in high school and found that it just invigorated me like nothing else had at that point. I found it so exciting. And so when I got to college, I knew that the arts were going to be a really big part of my life. I did kind of expect that when I went to college that I would sort of have to choose between those two things and, and kind of focus on one of them. And I was hoping that maybe one of those two domains, you know, performing arts or science would clearly emerge as, as one of my priorities. And I think what's great about my college experience is I was given the chance to not have to choose. For sure, I sacrificed sleep. And that was a big part of that. But I felt like people were cheering me on and weren't forcing me to choose as long as I had the energy to pursue both. So yeah, in college, I, I double majored in physics and math, but my minor was in dramatic arts. And so I took quite a lot of dance theory classes and directing and and even separately from my academic work, I was involved in like, <laughs> probably like 30 productions during my time there as a performer or behind the scenes. And yeah, I just I found that I had just so many collaborators at my fingertips and so many fresh ideas that I was being exposed to. And I really felt like the performing arts stage was this place that was ripe for experimentation. And it was that same sort of feeling of almost being in a lab and collaborating with other people. It's like there's all of this fascinating material to engage with these new trends and ideas that were popping up that I was seeing from semester to semester. And I wanted to make my own work too. So I feel like I was able to develop some sense of the rigor behind an artistic creative practice and that kind of experimentation. And that became really central to my, my identity in college and since then as well. Have you had the opportunity to be involved in any productions where you had creative control over it while working with other people? Yeah, absolutely. And probably the most personal one that I, the, the first very personal one that I experienced was my senior thesis in college. That was in the physics department 
most students didn't do a senior thesis for various reasons. Usually you had already applied for grad school by the time you would actually be turning in a thesis, for example. So it wasn't very common. And I remember talking with the head of the department at the time saying, hey, I want to do a senior thesis and I would love it to be a performance. What do you think? And I think he was he was excited by it. So I was kind of granted the freedom to develop this work and have it actually contribute to my academic path. And so I created this performance that was inspired and engaging with topics in particle physics, but it was very much an experimental theater piece. So we took over several floors of a building at night. And so we had the audience kind of scattered throughout all these floors of a building and chasing after actors. And we staged all these scenes in stairwells and bathrooms and studio spaces. And it really felt like the first time that I got to follow every single creative impulse that I had. And I was able to bring in material from my research and material from my coursework as well as material from some of the you know, artistic influences that I was engaging with at the time. So yeah, that was my first dose of really steering an entire creative performance. And then since then, I think in graduate school and during my PhD, I, I, I did choreograph a few works when I was there. And it was great to engage with that as a director and as a choreographer. But I also found that I was leading a research team. And that sort of felt very similar in the sense that I was letting my voice guide a series of creative and rigorous questions along the way. In your senior thesis that you mentioned, you had a crossover between the two topics that you're most interested in, that you were studied. Mm. Was there any product of that that you feel like there would not have been if you didn't have that opportunity to have that crossover in an academic space? Mm. You mean like engaging with those questions, did that influence my later research? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in in some sense, I actually credit that thesis with connecting me with my PhD advisor. At the time, I was, well, I was thinking so much about the Higgs boson, and because I had been so fresh off of its discovery, and I was thinking really deeply about choreography and thinking with the body and and kind of a dance theater space. And so I wanted to engage with the Higgs boson through dance and theater. And then at the time I was, I was researching about it. And then I found out about this collaboration between my PhD, my eventual PhD advisor and the head of the head of dance at Yale University, Emily Coates. So the two of them, my advisor was Sarah Demers. She's a professor of physics at Yale and Emily Coates, who I just mentioned, they have a long running collaboration thinking about physics and dance together. And they had also recently performed something engaging with the Higgs boson through the medium of dance and theater. I was just completely shocked and excited to hear about their collaboration. And I reached out to them as an undergraduate to connect and hear about their work and their process. Connecting with them and learning and comparing sort of how they had been approaching the subject with my own approach. It was the first connection that I had with Sarah. And that turned into one of the most important academic and artistic relationships I've ever developed. Did you continue that those relationships through your graduate work and through your doctorate work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well Sarah and I were collaborating on an analysis at CERN. So we had a, you know, a strong academic collaboration. We also became great friends. <laughs> but Sarah and Emily also have taught a course at Yale for several semesters called The Physics of Dance. And they've really structured it in this totally unique and engaging way that is meant to really put both disciplines at the center of the course and not try to, you know, value one more than another. And they really want to treat both of them as equally rigorous paths of experimentation and progress and process. 
So I was a teaching assistant for that course for a number of for a number of sessions of teaching it over the semesters while I was at Yale. So the three of us kind of, I, I was able to be incorporated into their process and work on this, on teaching this course with them. Uh, there was a textbook that eventually came out of that course that they published recently. So yeah, it felt like I was, in a sense, like they nurtured these two different paths of, of deep kind of academic and artistic practice. And I was able to, to grow so much from connecting with each of them during my PhD work. You said there was a textbook that came out of that. Is that something that's public that somebody else can yeah, look into if they were listening? Yeah, it is. I totally recommend it. And even though I say textbook, it's actually, it's short, but it's, it's dense, but it, it really captures the, the spirit of the course. It's just called the physics of dance. And I totally recommend it. It has these beautiful illustrations throughout and it gives a dose of the ethos behind the course in the sense that there's elements of, okay, how does a pirouette work from the perspective of a physicist? Let's talk about angular momentum, that kind of thing. But it also engages quite a bit with, with dance theory and dance practice and what does energy mean to a choreographer and what does space and time mean to a dancer? And so I find it totally refreshing and unlike any other course I've ever seen engaging with those topics. So you recently did this talk at Strange called Dancing with Myself. Can you please introduce that and talk about it a little bit, like give a just a general overview of what it's about? Yeah, this talk was a, a story about my experience over the past few years collaborating with machine learning models trained on my own dance movements in order to generate new material. And I wanted to present it as both a scientist and an artist to give the perspective on why I and my team developed the models that we did and some of the, some of the uh, thinking that influenced the models that we eventually created and how successful they, they were. And I also wanted to give a perspective as an artist who's working with this material, you know, was it actually, how was it useful and how was I able to engage with these models and think of them as collaborators in a sense. So I wanted to talk about some of the, some of the highlights of that collaboration and also some of the pitfalls or, or some of the things that I learned about what it's like to be a creative person interacting with a machine learning model that's attempting to be creative in its own way. So when you started this, did you come at this largely from a technical perspective initially or from a performance arts perspective? Hmm. It's hard to say. I, I first started thinking about the project around 2017, and I was using machine learning models in my own physics research for particle identification at the Large Hadron Collider. And I feel like I was starting to see some creative AI work start to emerge more and more. And I'd mostly seen it in the domains of, you know, visual art and music primarily, and maybe a little bit of poetry or generated text. And I just hadn't seen any examples of what it looked like for dance. So I was curious about it. And I really thought it would be about like a week or two long side project where maybe I would find some GitHub repository that already existed that would solve all of my problems and I would just test it out. So I bought a Kinect camera at the time that has some pose recognition abilities. And I was just playing around with it in my office after work for a couple nights and collecting data of my own movements and then feeding it into some very simple models and seeing how it was working. So I think I, I came into it wanting it to be primarily a creative question because I underestimated the technological difficulties associated with the project. And then when I got into it, I really realized that there wasn't really something out there that captured all of the things that I wanted to be able to do with some with a model like that. And so the technological questions started to emerge very organically during the process. You mentioned that you used the Kinect camera initially, which I'm familiar with, and then you started capturing some poses. 
was that your initial idea was capture some poses and then transition between different states to create movements? Yeah, the models that I was working with in, in my physics work were, were current neural networks. So thinking about kind of sequential ordering of data and then contextual information. So I was really thinking along the lines of time series data, sequence data sets, and just taking a sequence of poses and then predicting what should come next. So that was like the very baseline initial question was, let's just feed in a series of movements and then predict what should come after that. Did you continue that, that thought process through the entire project as you worked through it? Or did it transition to something new? Did you come up with a new way to represent this concept? I'd say it, it exploded into a couple, into many different avenues as research kind of always does, right? I feel like research has this mm-hmm. like tree-like structure. So we, we started by thinking about, you know, just predicting a single phrase that should come after. But it's clear that there's actually many different possibilities for, you know, there's no sense of what, of what one true or, you know, there's not one movement that is correct <laughs> to come after a series of preceding movements. There's actually many possibilities. And so... I think I started to think about it and I, and I tried to be less prescriptive in what the model was actually searching for. So um, in the process of training this model that was trying to predict what should come next, this probably the first phase of this research, which was this variational autoencoder structure, the goal of that model eventually was to represent a sequence of movements in a single high-dimensional point in the latent space of a machine learning model. And then to look at how various sequences that we had kind of encoded into different representations, how close they were to each other, how they related to each other. And then eventually, once the model was well-trained and it sort of learned this compressed latent space to represent all of my movement, I was able to also sample from that latent space and generate new movements that were highly related to the original movements, but were totally new. I'd say it branched into, you know, there was this trajectory interested in something purely generative. How can we just make something totally fresh and new using machine learning? And then there was this other track of co-creation. Given something that I am interested in, how can the model kind of respond to what I'm giving it and give me some feedback? And then I can, in turn, iterate on that process. And, and then I'd say there's also a third branch that's more introspective, that is less interested in let's just make new material and more about reflecting on my creative process. And yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that in depth too. As you started the project, what was the first time you thought, oh, wow, this is really great. This is going to work. This is, I'm just so excited about this. What was that (laughs) moment? What was the first one for you there? It started off so small. I mean, so many of these research projects, right? You, you, you try to celebrate the baby steps and I can really clearly remember a moment being in my office really late at night. And I had been just trying to generate the trajectory of a single point on my body, like let alone 50 points on my body that I was Mm -hmm. capturing. I was just like, all right, let me get my torso and just try to see where that should go. And I'd been getting some pretty terrible results for a while. And eventually I'd been iterating and starting to talk about it with some other colleagues of mine. And I finally was able to to predict a, a completely new trajectory for this one point. And it looked smooth and it had this interesting rhythmic structure to it. And it was surprising. And yeah, that, that was totally chilling at first. And, and then it, it kind of exploded even more from there. I was able to add more and more points on my body. And just being able to generate a new movement phrase and then actually recognizing that it was generated. And usually that's because it had some kind of, kind of like a, an artifact to it. Like it didn't look fully human, but it looked human enough 
that eventually I started to recognize myself in some of the movements that were being generated. And I think that's really when I was completely shocked. <laughs> Conversely, did you have a point when you thought, oh no, this isn't working out the way I expected? Or where you reached a technical problem where you just really felt like it was insurmountable on your own? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tried to do this project on my own for a long time. I kind of hit a wall several times and then I would return to it over, over a period of a couple months. And that was before I was talking to anyone else about it. And in particular, there was this stage of the project where I was shifting from using the Connect camera that I mentioned that was just you know on my desk at work to using a motion capture studio. Yale had just opened up this like brand new motion capture studio and they were really looking for people to try to use it and try to understand how to get interesting data from it. So I started going down to the studio and taking some data myself. And I found that the format of the data was so unlike the scientific data that I was used to. You know, it was the structure that was really meant to be put into like a, a video game or like, you know, some other kind of use case, like not for not for human consumption necessarily. And I really struggled with just like, I was just like, I want to get some simple data out of this. And the, the format is so insane and I don't know how to parse it and I don't know how to deal with this. So that's when I really realized that I needed help. And so I started talking to a lot of other folks who were kind of in the digital humanities space or in the kind of creative computing space. And I found some people who could help me extract meaningful data out of this, out of all these sessions that I had taken and who could help brainstorm with me about more inventive models that we could actually try rather than just the sequential based model that I was used to. So as soon as I started talking with people and, and sourcing this expertise that I needed and not trying to tackle all of it on my own, I, I certainly could have given up when I took this motion capture data and wasn't really able to use it. And it's only because I was able to find some people who were able to help me push through that we got some really nice results. Do you feel like you benefited significantly from switching to the traditional industrial motion cap setup compared to your Connect? Overwhelmingly, yes. <laughs> Which, I don't know, at the time, I, I was definitely aware that not. <laughs> I was so lucky to have access to this motion capture studio. I mean, it was it was such a privilege and it, it really made a big difference, both in the, the number of points on my body that I was able to capture. Also, the fact that there are around 20 cameras in facing different directions in this motion capture studio. So unlike the Kinect, where when I turned or occluded some parts of my body, and the camera couldn't pick up where my arm was going to be. Using the motion capture studio meant that I could use the full space and use my full range of motion without worrying. And the software that I, that I used also has some, some pretty nice post-processing such that the quality of the data is very smooth. So I really felt like I, it was a huge benefit to not have to deal with all of the data cleaning and also like predicting where different points were going to be. It made it so much, it made it so much easier <laughs> to work with nice data. Did having the motion cap studio provide you with extra computing power necessary to handle this data? Or did you have to step outside from there to find the necessary computing power you needed to mm. experiment the way you wanted to? Luckily, I, I already had access to the compute resources that I needed just already through the physics department and through Yale's computing cluster. So, so that was a pretty natural transition. But yeah, access to the data itself and also the expertise of people who knew how to use the studio, wanted to give me the opportunity to, to take as many recording sessions as I needed. And we're also just so invested in the project. You know, it, some, some of those resources that you need are just human excitement and a belief that what you're working on is, is meaningful and important. So all of those factors were really crucial for me. So earlier you mentioned there was uh, highlights and pitfalls, and I think we've only covered one of each. What would be some other highlights uh, of the project? 
Yeah, I'd say the just the different ways that I've been able to that I've learned of how to conceive of my relationship between myself as an artist, myself as a scientist, and this model or or the series of models that I've created with different teams over the past few years. Probably the one relationship that has surprised me the most is is this sense of thinking of it almost as a a way of preserving my creativity. It, it's I've started to think of some of these models in the sense of capturing how my body moves at this point in time with the brain that I have at this point. And I kind of love the idea that some of that creative spark is preserved in some of these trained models. So I love the kind of introspection that I've been able to develop with these models by thinking about what it means for my for myself and for my own creativity. Also, a, a later model that I developed last summer with some other collaborators was kind of a, a graph neural network structure. And that was much more focused on learning about how different parts of my body interact with each other. And so it was less interested in let's just generate new material. And it was more about what are the relationships in my body that this model notices are important? And how does that align with my own understanding of how my body fits together in those relationships? I'd say that some of those questions have been some of the most exciting is really expanding what I thought this project could be, because I really thought this project was just going to be let's just make some new material and it's exciting enough because it was generated. But I think I found that there's just a lot of different questions that you can ask out of a model like this. And sometimes the, the flashiest results, even though they're, they're very fun and compelling, sometimes they're not as interesting as, as some of these other like quieter questions that I found that I was asking later on in the process. Do you have a specific instance of some of those, the introspective results that you got between relationships, between parts of your body, how they move? Was there anything in that in that realm that was particularly surprising? Hmm. Well, I remember really being being blown away when I saw some of these results that the model was identifying in terms of those relationships between my body. One of the categories of relationships that it picked up on involved all of these connections between, I think it was my right hand and my left foot. And it was the pattern was extremely clear. All of those relationships were extremely highlighted. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this model's picked up on the fact that I have this cross-body relationship that's informed a bit by my ballet training about opposition between arms and legs and the importance of you know fingers and hands and feet and toes in developing future movements. And I don't need a model to like tell me how my body works, but it was really it was really cool for me to see that in some sense my ballet training is is fundamental to me now. Like it, like I was seeing that validated by this like alien creature that knows nothing about how a human body fits together. And that was really cool to see. And in some sense it actually differs a bit from how I think of myself generating movement. When I think about generating movement, a lot of it comes from my core and kind of emanates outward. And so it was interesting to me that this model was picking up on the extremities instead and not something that felt kind of more central and more powerful. But I kind of love that we disagree in a sense. Like it, it really made me think of how well I know myself or to what extent my own thoughts actually influence the way that I move. Or maybe is it that the way that I move is somehow in a different zone than, than what I'm thinking about when I'm moving, right? There's like kind of a way that I move very naturally and maybe that language is just inherent to me and maybe that differs a little bit from my evolved way of thinking about how I wish that I moved in a perfect world. So there were times when you had the model that was saying, this is the way she moves and you're mm -hmm. thinking, no, this is the way I move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 
So were there times when you when, when your ego got a hold and you just thought, okay, the model is wrong. I need to fix something about this. <laughs> yeah, I think in a sense, it's almost like listening to a recording of yourself, probably like what I will feel when mm-hmm. I listen to this podcast, right? Like you, you think right. that you present yourself a certain way. And then sometimes when you hear it back through the, the cold and calculating ear of a microphone that just picks up everything and you know, you, you think of it as being correct or like a, a real sense of truth, it, it can be shocking, that kind of disconnect. Now, I don't, I don't know if I think of the model as quite the same way, but I, I trust the scientific process and I trust the models that we've developed. And I think that the patterns that they pick up on are significant. And so I want to pay attention to them. It was particularly interesting for me to see some of the sort of average results that it presented, because that really, in a sense, summarizes what's the most stereotypical movement that Marielle Petit would do when she was improvising. And it was pretty correct. You know, it's it's funny to be presented with that, again, through through this very like inhuman lens. It's one thing to hear that from a friend or from a colleague who knows my work and, and knows how I like to move and knows the influences that I have. And it's quite another to just be presented with a pattern with no judgment behind it. So you develop some sort of trust of the model, which would lead to the next question would be, do you feel like when you saw those patterns, did you feel... I think discouraged is probably the wrong word, but I'm going to go with it. Like you felt discouraged from repeating those patterns because, oh, that's my stereotypical thing. I need to come up with a new thing. Like, did you, you mm. start feeling that way? Yeah. And in some sense, that was that was one of the goals of developing the model is I, I certainly noticed this in myself even before this whole research process started, which is just that when I was improvising, I found that I would just return to some of the same material over and over again. And it felt like a comfort zone. I know that that's normal, but I was... And and there are ways in the dance world where we think about structures and games and ideas that you can use to break out of that. But I loved the idea of trying to use machine learning to help me get out of that creative rut in a really unusual way and in a way that felt authentic to my own process as a scientist too. So I wanted to use machine learning to push myself to, to stop falling into those patterns and to create something new that nevertheless felt authentic. It wasn't just randomly generated movements. I still wanted it to feel like me in some sense. Yeah, one of the nice things about one of the models that we developed was that the generated or the latent space is sort of roughly constrained to look like a like a Gaussian distribution. And so there's a sense of what are the typical movements that lie in the bulk of, of the distribution. And then you can also look at the tails of the distribution and look at what are the really unusual movements that don't belong in the in the bulk. And some of the video pieces that I created where I was generating material from that latent space, more often than not, I was really sampling from the far tails of this distribution, trying to see some of the weirdest and freshest and most interesting movements that I could generate. Do you feel like those were the most influential to you artistically, were, were the edges of the distribution? Yeah, I, both have been influential for sure. I think some part of this process was about getting getting to know myself and looking at the average and trying to understand if that felt authentically like me or not. And then also a big part of it was looking at the tales and looking at how can I push myself and what what does a really unusual movement look like in the eyes of this model versus what I might think of to do in a studio. I will say too that a lot of this work, the final output of it has been digital and not quite physical yet. Like one of the challenges of this project has been translating the generated movements back onto my body. And I thought at first that maybe I would just teach myself a sequence that was generated by the model. But 
I found that the outputs were, they're so interesting. And I just, I get sucked into the computer screen when I look at them. And it's like the whole performance is already there. Like the performance is in looking at these series of points and seeing how human they look and then seeing these little jolts of unusual behavior or jitters or things that don't look human. And so for such a long time, like to me, like that's been, that's been the final result. Like I just want to stare at these beautiful moving animated results and the idea of translating it back on my body, it would be like such a far cry from what's actually happening in the real data. So the ways that I've translated back onto my body, some of the more effective ways that that happened was when I started this second iteration of looking at the relationships between different parts of my body. And there, rather than trying to imitate this beautiful thing that was already happening on screen, I was given a set of relationships to think about. And that I think is a lot more generative um, and easier to translate back onto a human body because I could play around with, okay, the model's telling me that this particular relationship between my, the top of my head and my right wrist is really important. So let me try to improvise with that for a little while and see, think about that relationship and play with it and let that guide some of my movements. Or conversely, what does this model think is my least important relationship in my body? And can I play around with that and see how difficult it is to create movements using this almost like a muscle that you never use, right? It it was identifying a relationship that I, that according to the model (laughs) that I don't really engage with. So did this most recent model that you're talking about, did that result in anything that you would consider inhuman? Or is this just purely a map of relationships between your own movements? Hmm. It's a cool question. I mean, it was, the model was still predicting future movements, but in a weird way, it was predicting future movements of, of a body, assuming that the quality of all of those relationships was fixed. So it was learning this this graph of relationships, but that graph was static. And I think that was one of the big limitations of the model. Because of course, like my muscles and forces in my body are constantly changing while I'm moving. So it was able to predict these future results that really were only valid for a short time. Because as soon as I move a little bit, those dynamics are going to change very dramatically and the model wasn't able to capture each of those movements. So yeah, if I let it predict far in the future, it created this like these totally weird effects of like my whole body like growing infinitely or or something very unusual. And so in, in terms of practical use cases, I was really looking at what, what sort of relationships the model was focusing on instead. When somebody's performing, there's there's things that matter for the performance, like your physical space, your location in that space, your level of energy, fatigue, general energy. Have you worked on parameterizing your models with any information like that, like meta information? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I've often heard people ask me if I also want to incorporate music or you know other other kind of kinds of influences into the model. And so far, the answer is no. So far, the answer is we've just looked at position data over time. I played around briefly with, you know, I'd improvised to a couple different pieces of music. And so I'd labeled my data based on the music that I used. And so we tried to experiment to see if we could create a model that could predict which data session a given movement came from, and maybe that would correlate with the music a bit. And we found that that was kind of inconclusive, that really a lot of my movement was kind of similar, regardless of what I was dancing to, which makes sense with how I think of my own movement, actually. Yeah. And then there's a question of, could I go into the data set and maybe hand label specific parts of it based on how I would describe the movement itself or maybe a quality of the movement? So far, I haven't 
I haven't gone into, I haven't augmented the data set in that way. So I've just been interested in, in the positions themselves. Do you think that some level of, I guess, just energy level or fatigue ends up getting baked in because of the sequence? Like if you held second position for 15 minutes, it's, it's very <laughs> unlikely that you would end up in another position with your arms out, right? Do you think that that just gets implicitly baked into the model? Yeah, I'm so interested in fatigue in general. <laughs> I love kind of like durational performance. And mm-hmm. I think there's a way that duration and repetition in a performance, they can just help you access like these like extreme parts of yourself that you you weren't able to access before. And so in some sense, yes, I mean, it was exhausting recording these sessions because I'm not often used to dancing constantly for 30 minutes at a time, right? It's, it takes a lot out of you. And these suits are heavy and sweaty and covering your whole body. And so, yeah, I think exhaustion for sure was baked into some of these. And, and I can tell a bit, actually, because I think some of my, the qualities that I associate with my performance quality, those are different from some of what I see in the data, which is really improvisational. And from what I remember, it was like these late night capture sessions and I'm just pushing to dance as long as possible because I just wanted as much data as possible to train on, but I'm only one body. <laughs> you know, it, it was tiring. And, and at the same time, I was pressuring myself, like, I want to have these capture sessions really capture everything about, about how I move. And so I wanted to be really exploratory and, and push myself as I was moving. I've thought a bit about how one of the cool side effects of one of these models is that it recognizes movements that are interesting and then not interesting in the sense of does this movement belong in the bulk of the distribution or does it belong in the tails? And so I think that actually might connect to this question about exhaustion in the sense of a performance where this model could be my friend in many cases in a performance where it's helping me generate new material, but I think it could also be an adversary. And in terms of where I'd like to go next with the project, that's something I've been thinking about quite a bit. Some sense of a creative torture chamber where, you know, the model is giving me some feedback, like this is boring, this is boring, this is boring, give me something better until maybe I I give it something more interesting. And then it's satisfied for a little bit until I fall back into that comfort zone again. And then it gives me that feedback again. This is boring. This is boring. This is boring. So yeah, in some sense, I want the model to exhaust me. And there's something compelling about the fact that this model is going to be able to generate interesting material infinitely. (laughs) And my human body is far more limited than that. So there is an interesting relationship there where at times I've felt a bit jealous of this model for not experiencing the kind of mental and physical exhaustion that I go through as a dancer when I'm trying to make something new. Earlier, you mentioned there was pitfalls. And before we get into that, I'd like to know why you use the word pitfalls and not challenges or problems. Hmm. In some sense, I think I mean those as synonyms. But maybe, maybe in some sense, I also think... Research is not linear. And I think I went on several paths that really felt like they weren't going anywhere. <laughs> and I don't regret thinking about those things or, or trying them out. But, you know, I definitely got stuck at many points. And, and I think also maybe, maybe by pitfall, I mean that I, I definitely learned quite a bit about how I wanted to think of my relationship with the model. And I think there were certain ways that I was thinking of it at first that I think were just wrong, or at least inauthentic to what the process ended up being. Like I remember describing the model early on to a friend and saying something about how it felt like watching a baby take its first steps or that it, you know, really understood me or, you know, sometimes I wanted to kind of overstate my relationship with the model. And I think it's because I really wanted the narrative to look a certain way. And I just thought that the narrative was going to be what I expected. And so maybe by pitfalls, I also mean like, 
I had to unlearn some things as I was working on the project. And it, I think it allowed me to create a more interesting story about what actually happened. How did you recognize those? I, I guess they would be dead ends effectively. How did you recognize those and talk yourself through the process of, okay, I've done this work. I need to back up. I need to regroup. Mm. Yeah, something I had to learn during my PhD is how to ask for help. I thought of myself as a very independent researcher. And I thought that's what a PhD was actually, was you are an independent researcher for six years or so, and you write your thesis by yourself and you create your mark on your field. And something I think I was learning simultaneously while working on this project on the side, and then also doing my primary PhD work was that there were a few projects I was working on in my scientific world where I knew that I was capable of doing it and I would work very hard on it. But sometimes you just have to talk to people (laughs) and it saves you a lot of time. And that there's not, it's not always noble to suffer on your own when you could actually be connecting with people. And that's actually better for science (laughs) and for the final output. Yeah, I think I was learning a similar lesson in my scientific work as I was also learning in this creative work, which is that you reach a point where you can't let your ego get in the way too much. That of course you're capable of getting through, working your way through pretty much any problem, but I don't think humans are really meant to solve problems that way. And I had such high expectations for myself that sometimes I wouldn't allow myself to ask for help and not even help, but just like bringing people into it, right? And getting fresh ideas and different expertise and bouncing ideas off of each other. I think I very quickly learned that once that started happening, just the feeling that I had, I just had so much more excitement for the project. I had hope. I had a sense of being unstuck, that it wasn't just about working as hard as I could to fix this one problem. And that was the only way forward, that there were actually many ways forward. Do you feel like this process of learning to involve other people, but doing so gradually was part of the project? Or do you just think, oh, if I just figured out how to ask for help early on, I would be at a further stage at this point? I love how these collaborations emerged. It was so organic and it felt like a real, <laughs> like a classic scientific research project or a creative research project in that it was just so organic and that the people who I ended up working with I consider extremely close friends and colleagues and people who I admire. So it didn't have some of the, you know, sometimes scientific collaborations can have this kind of arbitrary, very formal structure. And I just loved the sensation of having this totally informal structure of people who really liked each other and wanted to work with each other and were excited to push away their professional obligations and do a hackathon together on a Wednesday morning because we just were so excited to talk to each other. And yeah, like I said, it happened very organically where I was sitting in my office and there was a postdoc who sat at the desk next to me who was a great friend. And he saw me working on some of this stuff and then was asking me, you know, hey, were you working? What are you working on? And those would turn into three hour conversations at work and we would just start working on code together and creating something. That's how these things kind of always start, right? So it, so first working with him and that really invigorated me and made me feel like I was doing something meaningful. And that allowed me to try to bring in other folks, people from digital humanities, a couple other great friends and artists who I really admire. These guys, Ilya Vidrin and Raymond Pinto, who were able to bring in, you know, a deep artist's perspective on this work about, you know, what are the ethics of involving technology in 
human choreographic material? And also, what are, how can we think of these technologies as influencing our work? So it felt like I was able to assemble over time this really gorgeous narrative of what are these exciting developments in AI that we want to play around with that we could probably bring into this project, as well as as creators and as dancers and choreographers, how can we start to really grapple with technology because we can't pretend that it doesn't exist anymore or it's no longer on the fringes of the field anymore. So yeah, I think I think we were able to create a really uh, a diverse set of perspectives and that was really essential for the project. So about those pitfalls, what were some of them? The pitfalls? <laughs> yeah, the pitfalls. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm really proud of of what the project turned into. So by pitfalls what I really mean are kind of like surprising moments or like moments where I really realized that I was I had this prescriptive narrative of what I thought this project would look like and then it really didn't look that way. And so some of that was in for example, like some of the outputs that I loved the most of the whole project were these movements that really didn't look human at all. Like I thought that the most impressive parts of the project were going to be I created this dancing person on a screen that looks like me and that would be almost indistinguishable from me. And I was really fixated on this idea of creating like a body double or like an embedded version of myself into a an AI model. And then instead, when I showed a lot of this material to new people, and also when I experienced it myself, just looking at the outputs of the model, the most exciting stuff that I found was stuff that did not look human, that still had recognizable elements of human choreography in it, but it was just so unusual and so funny. (laughs) And that was really what I was not expecting. But these glitches, these like weird, just like totally inhuman elements. So I think that was in a sense a pitfall, but also like something that I learned to recognize as one of the best parts of this project was looking at these outputs that were just totally weird and inhuman and unusual. And there was no way that I could think of how to translate those back onto my body but it brought the project in this totally other direction. And it really influenced the kinds of movements that I ended up fitting together for for some of my initial video projects. Because the glitchiness, it, like, it draws people in. And I think it reminds you that a computer made it. And at the same time, some of the qualities of the glitchiness, it almost resembles human effort. Like It, it like had this like tension to it that really helped the performance quality of the outputs. So... I never expected that to, you know, really be fixated on like, let's make something that's as weird as possible versus something that's as beautiful and polished. And I'd say the other pitfall that comes to mind is being really fixated on generating uh, new material. Just let's create a, a movement from scratch with no context. Even though that was the initial push of the project, I think after we sort of hit that milestone, we were able to all kind of take a step back and be like, okay, how else can we play with this? And one way that we found was really effective for that was to use real data as prompt material for some of the generated outputs. That really went against the way that I was viewing the project at first, because it felt very important that the generated outputs were pristine or, you know, like fully coming from the model without any kind of human influence on the generated output. I even resisted, like, I don't want to embed anything about gravity or about like, you know, my actual dimensions of my body. I didn't want to restrict the outputs to look human. So I really resisted wanting to put in really any, any kind of like human influence onto the model. I just was so interested in what would a purely AI generated movement look like. But then I was really surprised by the fact that one of my favorite outputs from the project were these movements that were prompted by real data. So instead of just getting something randomly. Instead, I was really able to guide the model in a sense and say, 
here's a movement that I did in my recording session that I think is beautiful. What movements are related to that movement that the model could generate? So instead of just creating something from scratch, I was able to, to really dig into this initial phrase and tweak it somehow. It was like iterating on a phrase with another dancer in the room with me who was able to say, that's beautiful. Like, let me try. And then inevitably it looks a little bit different. And there's this kind of exchange that happens between the two. And one of the coolest parts to emerge from this was I created at the very start of the pandemic, a duet that was generated with myself. And so that's why I titled my talk, Dancing With Myself, is in a sense, this was the highlight of the whole project, creating this piece that took a stretch of movement from my actual recording session. And then side by side, throughout that whole piece, I used the model to generate an accompaniment to those phrases as I move. And the effect is that there's like two versions of me. And when I look at it, the movement looks totally authentic and it reminds me that there wasn't one way that I could have moved in the studio at the time. It's like I'm going back in time a bit and I'm just experiencing these two different possibilities side by side. And I mean, talk about moments that really shocked me. There was a moment in the first time when I generated some of these accompanying movements. There's this phrase that I do in the original capture session where it's pretty static and I'm sort of standing and looking down at my feet and moving very gently. And in the very first generated movement that I made for that movement, which I would have looked at that movement and been like, that's not terribly interesting, but you know, it was kind of a quiet moment in the recording session. And then the model generated this movement to accompany it where the generated dancer is seated and has her feet at the base of my real data and is looking up at, it looks like they're looking at each other. And it's like two humans just having this, this like moment of recognition with each other. It's so, it's so stunning and it's my favorite part of the whole duet. But there are a bunch of these really surprising moments where what the model was able to generate creates this completely fascinating counterpoint and turns an unremarkable moment from the original phrase into something really sublime. So I think it was a pitfall for me to be very, to be so focused on just generating something new or something raw or untouched. And I underestimated how powerful it would be to have a model talk back to me and to kind of augment what I had already done in the studio unknowingly at the time. Was that duet comprised of multiple motion recording sessions that were assembled together? Or is this like one full session? The duet is, I think it's around three minutes long, and I just mm -hmm. took a continuous three-minute segment from one of those recording sessions. So it, you know, it's it's not choreographed. <laughs> it's kind of this meandering movement of me walking around the studio and spinning and dropping to the floor and stretching, and it's it's very casual in some sense. But then generating this movement to accompany the original phrase, I think, elevates it and it turns it into something that actually looks kind of choreographed, which is pretty special. Did you feel influenced by previous attempts where you saw something interesting happen? And then in the next attempt, you thought, I want to see if I can make that happen again. That the element of kind of the duet emerged from us generating a lot of phrases. And a lot of them mm -hmm. looked kind of similar to one another. And we were really struggling with how do we prompt the model to give us something interesting and something that we think will look like a natural movement phrase. And sampling randomly from the latent space was doing something, but it, you know, we felt like we didn't have that much control. So then instead, kind of the natural next step in the research process was, I, I think my collaborator Chase had this idea, you know, let's look at 
the embedded point of a real phrase. Like, let's see where the real data lies in this latent space. And let's explore the sequences that are highly related to that real data, because that will probably be, it's more likely that those movements will look surprising and also realistic and, and human. So we were seeking more direction in how we were generating the phrases. And so in a sense, that was prompted by a research question. And then I think it was Emily that first told me, she suggested some of this potential that she saw in these kind of, in these duets that I was constructing, where I was just looking at tweaking certain phrases and, you know, let me see how far I can push an original phrase or how much I can explore it. And then I think it was her suggestion to say, this could turn into a a much longer exploration. It could be a duet. So yeah, it's funny noticing ways where just a, a very classic research question, the final result of it was actually this very lovely artistic moment. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time. Is there is there anything else that you wanted to express about your duet in particular? I think something I wanted to mention is something that I, I, I used to conclude my talk at Strange Loop, which is thinking about what this process taught me about my how I could conceive of my relationship to a model. And like I said, I, was, I, I went into this process expecting a very specific kind of relationship where I was in control and I wanted the model to create something that looked almost exactly like me, <laughs> except it just wasn't me. But I wanted to create something that looked very polished and technologically impressive and was like a, a mini dancer that I could just control in my screen. And I think instead what I found is the research process was so meandering and involved so many different interesting people that I learned so many more diverse and interesting relationships that I could have with a model than that one where I was controlling basically all of the outputs. And so a, a set of axes that I started thinking about over the last year was, we're, we're kind of like, there's this axis of, is the model your friend or is the model not your friend? And whether that means that they're antagonistic or impartial or whatever you would like to call it. So I've started thinking about kind of the differences between those two ways of thinking about engaging with a model. Do I see it as a collaborator or do I see it as something else, something that's challenging me or something that doesn't care about me. And maybe that's the usefulness of it. And then the other axis that I've thought about is about who is making those executive creative decisions. And does it feel like I'm in control of the creative power? Or does it feel like I have ceded some control to the model and that I want the model to be making creative decisions? So along those two different axes, I feel like the project has bounced around quite a bit <laughs> that we've tried experimenting with all of these different ways of thinking of it. And sometimes the model has felt like my friend and sometimes it's felt antagonistic or just impartial, like the sense of sort of reviewing my body without knowing what a body is. And that was kind of its power. And then a lot of the times I felt like I had the creative executive power. And then at times it's felt like the model has. So I think that's that's kind of the only other thing I wanted to mention is that there's just so many different relationships that I've found that I had with these different models that I developed with my group. And I'm glad that I learned that it didn't have to be just one thing, that there really were so many avenues to explore and that it it's challenged me and it's it's broadened my perspective about what AI art is or what it should be or how it should look like and how it should feel. And I think there's still quite a lot of potential to continue to be surprised because there's so much movement in this space. And I think artists are increasingly interested in engaging with these questions. 
And luckily, this technology is continuing to get more accessible to folks too. So, yeah, I think there. I, I hope to just to think about and you know a third axis along that set too, and, and hopefully even more. I've been humbled by it <laughs> by this process, and I think I, I hope I continue to be. Well, I thank you very much for chatting with us today. Where can people go online to find out more about you and more about your work? I'm on Twitter. I don't post too often, but that's a great way to be in touch with me. <laughs> and you can just find me at Marielle Petit and you can find a link to my website there too. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Our host this week was Robert Randolph, who is at Admiral B on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cottoncast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. And the outro music is by Nazca at nazcamusic.com. I'm Jarrett Benford. Please stay safe and healthy out there. And thanks for listening to the Cognacast. Cast.